Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Good morning, church. Today's message is called Jesus Said, and we're going to be focusing on the first words that Jesus says that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. We'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark as we focus on chapter 1 of Mark. So please turn to your Bibles there. We'll be focusing on verses 14 and 15. As we look at this passage, we're going to be looking and taking from that passage and extracting three key points. Jesus said it's time. Jesus said to repent. And Jesus said to believe. Before we start, please join me in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father. For giving us an opportunity to share your word. We ask you, Heavenly Father, that you watch over my mouth and guide me as I speak, so that I may speak your truth and speak words that are grounded in the foundation of your scripture. I ask you to be with the speaker who listens to this message, so that they may hear your words and they may pierce them and hit them right at their marrow, and that they may be transformed by your word. Heavenly Father, we ask you to watch over us during this time and help us that we may put our trust in you and follow your ways, follow your decrees, Heavenly Father. And even in this challenging times, that your gospel may reign. We pray this all in your precious Son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the difficulty some have in entering the doorway to the kingdom of God is like the experience of a boy who got his hand caught inside an expensive vase. His upset parents applied soap suds and cooking oil without success. When they seemed ready to break the vase as the only way to release his hand, the frightened boy cried out, Would it help if I let loose of the penny I'm holding? <laughs> All too often we find ourselves in similar situations where we cause great anguish and risk of something that is valuable because we will not let go of something that's insignificant that we possess today. And this takes us and leads us to the passage that we're going to be focusing on today. Again, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which reads, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching, the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, as we look at this and we study this, we're going to start looking at the background, which we'll see in verse 14. Again, verse 14 reads, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God. In the previous few verses, before this, we saw that Jesus was baptized and he spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness as he was being tempted. All the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, start with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. However, John's gospel reveals to us that Jesus had an early Judean ministry that was concurrent with, the, with John the Baptist and his ministry. We find this in John's Gospel in John 3, 22-24. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judah, 
and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So here we see that this happened before he was thrown into prison. So you see, so you see Mark along with Matthew and Luke, they are being selective in their accounts that they are choosing to record and to pass over. Um, and we see that John himself, in his gospel, openly talks about this in John 21, 25, where, he's, where he says, And therefore are also many other things that which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose, that even the world itself would not contain books that could be written. So this is in no way a contradiction between the Gospels. Uh, the, the authors of the Gospels are being led by the Holy Spirit and choosing which events that they are recording in order so they can keep in mind their audience that they're reaching and what's going to really, um, it, what's really going to be what they need to hear, basically. So as Jesus starts building up his mission, John is nearing the end of his mission. And this for us is a sober reminder of what it's regarding in, um, in the expansion of our own missions that we may be involved in. Our chief end has to always be what is his mission, the advancement of his kingdom. It's all about him and us being in service to him. Our missions or the areas that we may be serving in may end at any time, as in the case of John, and it could even cost us our lives. So this is something that we have to be very mindful of. But the high price of serving our God is nothing compared to the sin debt that we have on our heads, but was paid for by His Son. The high price to serve our God is nowhere near the value of the rewards in which we will enjoy once we are finally in His presence. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, we see that John is arrested. Arrested, or handed over, in the Greek is paradimioi, which refers to both the adversities one is subject to, along with the ultimate will of God that is operating through this current situation. We find more detail of John's arrest later on in the Gospel of Mark. We see this in Mark 6, 17-18, which reads, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So at this time also we see that Jesus begins his preaching and he starts his ministry in Galilee. Note the stark contrast here of what we're seeing. We're seeing that John was just arrested, and Jesus is uh, really expanding his ministry now. And this is an, a reminder to us that the gospel is always to be proclaimed and known in times of adversity and suffering, just as much as, as it should be known and proclaimed in times of ease and comfort. This is very intentional and something that Mark really draws us in for, and that's why he puts that comparison right there. We look... Here in our passage at preaching, which is translated from the Greek word karyoso, which means to announce, to make known, to proclaim out loud. And Jesus was proclaiming an urgent and an important message. This message is broken down in three parts 
as we will see as we dissect the next verse. And this takes us to our first of our three points. Jesus said, it is time. So we will continue reading in verse 15 of our passage and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Time, or the Greek word kairos, means a favorable, opportune, or significant time as opposed to just a chronology of time. The kingdom of God is at hand means that the kingdom of God is near, as we see in other translations like the CSB or the NIV. This is in comparison to the NASB, which we're using right now. So what is the kingdom of God? Or Matthew, if you read in his gospel accounts, he'll call it the kingdom of heaven. The reason that Matthew is doing that is he's using the Jewish tradition that they didn't want to ever say God's name out loud. So therefore, that's why he's saying it's the kingdom of heaven. And they understand that as a Jewish audience, that he's referring to the kingdom of God. So in first century Judaism, the kingdom of God described a future earthly kingdom in which God, through Israel, would rule all over the world. But in actuality, the kingdom of God is when the kingly authority of God is, is, is acknowledged and is upon us. So although God is always sovereign and rules over everything, we see from the scriptures that the kingdom of God contains a future element of a realm or a reign of salvation, if you will. Yet, we are still accurate to say that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. So, the kingdom of God is present. We see this recorded in Luke's Gospel. Luke 17, 20-21 reads, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God is coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Yet, we are also accurate to say the fullness of the kingdom of God, or when the kingdom of God is consummated, that it will take place when Jesus Christ returns. So the fullness of the kingdom of God is still to come. So the kingdom of God is also future. We also see this in Luke's Gospel. Luke 22:18 reads, For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Matthew's Gospel even records in a parable how the kingdom will grow, starting from Jesus' first appearance on the scene and to the eventual fullness during his second coming. We see this in Matthew 13, verses 31 to 32. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The coming of the kingdom of God was also mentioned in the Old Testament, referring to Jesus coming in the flesh. We see the prophet Isaiah say in his book in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We also see the prophet Jeremiah say in his book in chapter 23 verses 
5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name, by which he will be called the Lord our righteous, our righteousness. The kingdom of God will be eternal, as seen in Daniel's book. Daniel 2.44 reads, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Regarding the kingdom of God, Jesus said in the gospel message, or the good news of the kingdom, will reach the ends of the world, as recorded in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22, verse 14. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus also refers to the kingdom of God coming into power, relating to himself in his full divinity as it was on display during the transfiguration. Jesus gave a preview of his full divinity, of his full divine nature, and how he will appear during his second coming, as we see in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which reads, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come into power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowed them, and a voice came out from heaven, "This is my beloved son, listen to him." Romans records um, which is actually referring to Isaiah 45, the future consummation of the kingdom of God. When every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess, as it says in Romans 14, 11, For it is written, I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. And Revelation records the complete and utter defeat of our adversary, the evil one, in Revelation 12, 10, which reads, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Yes, he will finally be defeated on that glorious day, church. And this takes us to our second point. Jesus says to repent. So we're just focusing on that word repent in verse 15. The call to repentance was central to Jesus' mission. Remember his words in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, when he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This was the heart of Jesus' mission. Repentance is crucial because the penalty of sin is death. Sin brings God's wrath and judgment. 
fellowship of God is only made possible through full surrender and sincere repentance. God, throughout all of the scriptures with his servants and the prophets, have called for people to repent repeatedly. And this is still our call even today as his servants to call for people to repent and to turn from their wicked ways. Genuine repentance, which is always accompanied by genuine faith, is the only way to escape the full wrath and judgment of God, which is made possible due to the perfect work that Christ did on the cross. By repenting and believing, we receive forgiveness of our sins and restoration. Coupled with the command to repent is the command to believe. And we'll explore this a little bit more on our next point. So if repentance denotes that which one turns from, belief denotes that which one turns to, and that they, what they turn to is the gospel. Additionally, both verbs in the Greek are present imperatives. That means believers are to enjoy living in a condition of repentance and belief as opposed to just momentary acts. This is something we're supposed to always be doing, always be believing, always be repenting. The reality is that repentance and belief cannot, cannot be applied to just certain areas of our life and not to others. That's really unacceptable. Repentance and belief must claim total allegiance from believers if they are genuine. It has to rule our whole entire lives. In other words, genuine faith always involves genuine repentance and vice versa. We just need to look at Acts and to see the words of Peter to confirm this truth. Acts 2, 38-39 read, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is from for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. We also see this in Acts again in chapter 20, covering verses 20 to 21, which reads, How I did not shriek from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be wondering what genuine repentance looks like. Let us look to the original language. Repent is translated from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change one's mind or to change one's way. It means to be converted, to feel remorse. So what are we called to repent from? We are called to repent of our sins and our wickedness, the way in which we are living worldly lives. A life of carnality and wickedness does not show evidence of genuine repentance. Humility is absolutely required. We must abandon our worldly ways. We cannot look like the world. We must turn our life around. We must humble ourselves. 7 Chronicles 7.14 reads, And if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Ezekiel 18.21-23 reads, 
But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, and observes all my statutes and practices, justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather, that he should turn from his ways and to live. Look at the mercy of the Lord. Let us not take advantage of this. Let us focus on his mercy. To live in open rebellion to God is the biggest mistake one could ever do. To live in open rebellion is true foolishness. It is important to note here that even with genuine repentance, it may not remove the effect of human sin. Scripture has many examples of this. The Israelites' repentance could not prevent the 40 years of wandering that resulted from their refusal to enter the Promised Land. Saul's repentance, whether it was genuine or not, was too late to escape God's judgment on his kingship. David's repentance, although by all accounts it did seem to be truly sincere, did not stop his son, who was conceived sinfully with Bathsheba, from dying. Esau's repentance did not bring back the birthright he had sold away to Jacob. We also need to remember that we should never take advantage of God's mercy. Yes, God is kind when you do not deserve it. Yes, God is tolerant when you do not deserve it. Yes, God is patient when you do not deserve it. But God is kind when you do not deserve it so that you will repent. God is tolerant when you don't deserve it, so you will repent. God is patient when you don't deserve it, so you will repent. As it says in Romans 2, 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's mercy and grace leads to our repentance. So a genuine repentance is a fruit of God softening a stone heart. Genuine repentance is a sign of genuine faith and a genuine relationship with God. Yes, a genuine relationship with God comes from a genuine belief. And this takes us to our third and final point, Jesus said to believe. Verse 15 concludes, and believe in the gospel. Scripture without a doubt stresses that fallen human beings are completely cut off from God on account of their sin. We are totally depraved, and He is absolutely holy. We have to understand this gap, church. Okay? In order to be saved, it is required that we enter into a new relationship with God. Salvation can never be the result of human achievement, of human privilege, of human wisdom, but instead, totally depends upon the grace of our loving God. We have nothing to boast about. That comes at the cost of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross when he took our place that we deserved to pay off our sin debt and experience the full wrath of God on him. One must respond in both repentance and faith if they are to benefit from God's offer of salvation in Christ. We talked about repentance, but what about belief? 
What does genuine belief look like? Again, we must go to the original language. Belief is translated from the Greek word pistuyu, which means to be confident about, to trust or entrust, and to rely on. The truth is crucial in understanding saving faith. This truth is crucial in understanding what is required to have a relationship with God. Remember what James says that even the demons believe in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But the belief is just that God exists, that he is real, and they even um, acknowledge his title as Lord. But Satan and his demons do not have confidence in God. They do not trust God. They do not rely on God. So you must ask yourself, evaluate yourself. Is my belief in God any different than the fallen angels? Do you have confidence in God? Do you have confidence in his word? Do you have confidence that his ways are above your ways? Do you really put your trust in him above trusting in yourself? Do you trust in his faithfulness, in his goodness? Do you still have confidence and trust in him when your whole world is falling apart? Do you rely on him? Do you rely on his teachings? Do you rely on his commands? Do you rely on his ways? If you really do not have confidence in him, if you really don't trust him, if you really do not rely on him, what makes you any different than a fallen angel? What are you depending on to make it into heaven? Is it your good works? Remember what it says in Romans 4, verses 1 through 3, which reads, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God, good works will not save you. You need to believe in the saving message that is found in the gospel, that many translations will also say is the good news. So what is the good news? What is the gospel message? This is the good news, that salvation is both about God and from God. The gospel is the good news of the fulfillment of God's promises from the Old Testament. The promise of the coming Messiah who would save those who place their trust in him from the penalty of sin and from the Father's wrath. For he took our place on Calvary, on the cross. And when God shows grace, grace we do not deserve, he softens one's heart. Yes, while we were his enemies, he showed us the greatest act of love. We see this in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, the Father sent his beloved Son in whom he loved and he died for us. The wrath that we deserved, he put it on his Son. This is the act of love. And this is good news for you and me. And again in Romans 3, Verses 22 to 24 reads, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. We all fall short, but God provided us with a way. That is good news. He calls forth our name like Lazarus's name was called forth from the grave. Our dead and dry bones come alive. For no reason other than his mercy are we able to see the truth and appreciate all that Jesus has done for us. What Jesus has done for his own sheep. With softened hearts, we surrender to our personal Lord and Savior. We are made brand new. We are made born again. What we need to do on our part is summed up perfectly in Romans 10, 9 through 10, which reads that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with, a, with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now that is an astonishing promise. I know of no sweeter words than these. Yes, this is incredibly good news. Now please consider this as we start to wrap up this message. George Whitfield mentioned in his journal that during his first voyage to Georgia, the ship's cook had a bad drinking problem. When the cook was reproved for it and other sins, he boasted that he would be wicked until the last two years of his life and then would reform. Not a good idea. <laughs> Whitfield added that within six hours of the time the cook made this boastful, this boastful statement, he died of an illness related to his drinking. So as our time comes to a close, I beg you, do not delay. Do not fallow in the foolishness of that cook who thought that he had plenty of years left on his life. Tomorrow is one of Satan's greatest lies. The reality is that you are not only not guaranteed tomorrow, you are not guaranteed the next breath that you are about to take. Do not delay. If you have not responded to the good news, to the gospel message, today is the day. If you have not put your trust in him, today is the day. If you have not surrendered to him, today is the day. If you have not relied on him, today is the day. If you have been waiting to repent, know that today is that day. Yes, today is the day to trust in him. Yes, today is the day to surrender to him. Yes, today is the day to rely on him. Yes, today is the day. All the glory to God. Amen. Great is thy faithfulness